0: Friends and listeners, welcome to this episode, new episode of the Thoth Herbis podcast. Today is Sunday, March the 7th, 2021. And yes, it has been some time since we last issued an episode. And for those of you who have listened to last week's, well, two weeks ago, announcement uh, about this, um, you know that it is an intermediate episode, that this is an episode interview only as i call them and where i just like to cover a bit the bridge until we start our new season six and once again thank you everyone to be so loyal to this podcast in spite of the long break that i took uh, the last month all right i won't keep you long with this intro today it is interview only as i said there will be no break in our interview and there will be no music played at the beginning at the end and there is not even an outro where i speak at the end you just hear the usual outro music and that will be it but the interview itself is really highly interesting my guest on this talk is canadian author richard gavin and richard has not only written interesting and exciting fiction books he is a highly interesting man when it's talking about psychology the occult initiation etc etc and of course the artistry of writing books for those of you who don't know he has also written a non-fictional book with theon publishing issued a few years ago the benighted path we talk about that also towards the end of that interview so don't miss out on that one i think you're gonna enjoy our talk So just you know that this talk has already been recorded last year in September. So September 2020. So when we speak about releases of a new book next year, when he says that this is meaning, of course, this year 2021, because, well, it's six months old, that interview. But I certainly didn't want you to miss out on that really interesting talk. And that is why, for making the wait until the new season a bit shorter, i thought you might want to hear this talk that we had um well that's about it um you should be on the watch for in about two weeks or so to get the announcement who will be my first guest in season one season in season six what am i saying in season six and season six will be starting as promised on easter sunday which is April the 4th. April the 4th is the day and that will be the return of the regular episodes of the Thought Hermit podcast as you are waiting for. Okay, well, this is, as always, Rudolph your host, and I now let you go and listen to that nice talk I had last September with Richard Gavin. Enjoy.
1: Here comes the interview.
0: It is a great pleasure for me to welcome a guest from Canada once again. And uh, I mean, once again from Canada. (laughs) Uh, You Canadians are quite a bit around here, not only as guests here, but also as. As listeners, actually, there's a a high number of Canadians listening to this podcast, which makes me happy. And um, I am happy to welcome tonight Richard Gavin. Hello, Richard. Nice to have you with me today. Hello, y'all. Thank you for
1: having me. It's an honor.
0: Well, it's great to have you. It's it's an occasion we, we we were looking forward to get you on this show. Is the r- release of your latest book, Grotesquerie, uh, which has been released, I guess, about two months ago. Is that, yeah, is that came correct? Out. Came out on September the first. Yeah. Yes. So I have it here um, in front of me, and I was one of the lucky ones who got one of those first copies to to read. And um, I was going to ask you a few definitions before we get into the personality of Richard Gavin today, um, because the book is called Grotesquery, right? Yes. So, um, could you give us your personal definition of what grotesque is for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I trace it back to a lot of its origins, which is more in Grotto-esque, which I believe etemo- mm-hmm. etymologically is where it comes from. Absolutely. And so, for me, that has tremendous resonance because it, it involves the depths. It involves um, something that is presented which, is, which breaches the confines, if you will. It's something that, is, that offers a glimpse of, of distortion. It offers a glimpse of vastness. So, as much as it can be horrific, it can also be, in my personal opinion, extraordinarily beautiful. So, as strange as that may seem to some people, very, very much of what I write about, a great deal of the imagery, is uh, images that I find incredibly beautiful, as much as they are uh, grotesque. So, uh, this this title, the title of this collection, has kinship with my previous collections in that I always try to select titles for my books that have equal parts of the or the dark if you will and the beautiful and the sublime Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you know there's there's charnel wine there's sylvan dread so there's usually these these two elements that i try to present equally you know i try to essentially uh give equal voice to both components um i think occasionally that can be lost and i guess that's to be understood because sometimes the the extremity or the the um the level to which these darker images or their more horrific images or grotesque images um, conveys sometimes can eclipse the the sublime or the numinous aspect. However, I do right. try to make sure that they are both deeply enveloped in, in the work. So that, that to me is why I chose the title for the new the new book. And also it also speaks a little bit about the the ethos of my my writing in general.
0: Absolutely well. Coming to your writing in general, because that—that that was exactly my my next question about the definition that I'll I would like to have from you and as a intro into our interview, so to speak. Um, what you write is. Generally called weird fiction as a genre. That's what what the
1: name mostly is. Would you agree with that? Uh, I th- I, I, I've heard that the label used quite often. I know weird has definitely taken on a, a new resurgence mm-hmm. in, in in the speculative fiction field. Um, personally, I think of all of my fiction as as horror fiction. However, right. I, I you know I have no issue at all with being termed weird fiction or supernatural fiction um, or gothic fiction. Um, I think of it all in that the reason why I tend to specify it a little bit more towards, towards horror or the gothic is because it broaches those particular areas. So because weird is such a, a broad umbrella term, it can encompass you know more whimsical fiction, uh, more fantastical fiction. Most of the, the work that I do is quite anchored in those moments of, of, of revelation and, and almost self-dissolution um, which I think is it puts it closer in kin with with horror fiction. So yeah, I would sort of define it as that, but definitely of the of the, the supernatural realm.
0: Absolutely no, but you already you, you you got me exactly why I was asking this question, and I was about sure that you would not be at a hundred percent in agreement with the weird fiction as mm-hmm. a genre. And I was going to ask you what genre you would give to it, so you you already answered that. But maybe you you would like to go a bit more in depth into horror and gothic because um it's, those are all terms like esoteric like occult right. like, like those big terms which have been given such a well i say it nicely a broad uh, a, a broad uh, meaning that is sometimes yes. covers for almost too much area so maybe if you want to be a bit more precise what this is for you what this means for you
1: certainly i will and i would i would Concur 100%. Um, if there's if there's one thing I dislike, it is when terms are bandied about so often, so frequently, and so widespread that they they lose their their original meaning. Right. So you know, for, we mentioned you know, occult. Uh, mm. I, I would wager that it would be it would be pretty difficult to get five people together and get a consensus right off the bat of what that term means. It means so many different things, uh, because right. it's, it's, it's grown to become this this almost catch-all phrase. So I, I do I do like the, the challenge of sort of fine-tuning it, and I would say that if I had to really narrow down what I, uh, what I do, I regard it as almost numinous horror fiction, or, or mm-hmm. visionary horror fiction, if you will. I, I hope that doesn't sound too pretentious, but the reason why I would mm-hmm. give it that, that model is, as I said, both of these streams inform my work equally. Uh, there is the the aspect of otherness as well that I always felt that this conveyed um, aspects of of the the sacred aspects of of the the truly numinous um, and one of the things that I will say the reason why um, I present the work the way that I do is that's always been what has evoked that most for me. I've just always had this immersion in I suppose what the best term for it would be a kind of demonic reality. And I say, mm-hmm. I say demonic in the sense of not, not necessarily demonic, but in the sense that it is yeah. not only spirit-infused in, and spirit-led. Uh, spirit um, I can't quite call it infernal or defined. It's definitely this liminal state. It's a kind of in-between. Uh, so a, a demonic reality. And I think all of my work, fiction and nonfiction both, are explorations of that. And so with with the fiction element, I think it provides context and inspiration, and also, too, hopefully, with readers that perhaps are not overly interested in the esoteric or the philosophical mm-hmm. or the mystical, it's a way that they can at least have an emotional experience, a truly sort of visceral experience in response to the reading of the work that evokes paradoxical responses, something where they too may feel an attraction and a repulsion, a fear, but also a a tremendous sense of of broadening or stretching. And I think that those two streams for myself are inseparable. It's a little bit different from an approach of, let's say, someone who works with dark imagery, either in their spiritual practice or in their their literature or their, their artwork, and they're doing it to sort of you know, quote unquote, banish their demons, or to uh, achieve some state of perfection, or um, you know, wading through the darkness to, to to get to the light. That is definitely different from my own approach. I view these two as inseparable. I think that the 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 sublime and the the dreadful or the fearsome are inextricably linked, and therein lies their power. To me, as I said, this is how it's always spoken to me how i've always participated with it and so i try to convey that as as honestly as i i can and as eloquently as i can through 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 the literature mm-hmm.
0: well thank you that was a great definition and i would say your approach to me sounds almost like a very hermetic approach where mm-hmm. both sides not only need to be balanced, but also they request each other. They cannot be one without the other because they are one altogether. Indeed, Uh, absolutely. And that that is probably uh, an approach. And that's also, you just mentioned that not everyone who is reading your stories, your books, will be an occultist or interested in esoteric worlds. That's right. Uh, And maybe that holistic approach that you take will help... Uh, that those people like those books? Would you, would you see it like that?
1: I do. And, and the one thing that I always try to stress when, when asked about things like this is that if there are readers who are approaching, let's say, the collections of short stories and they are just looking for um, a, a, the reading of fiction that they find engaging, that's perfectly fine. You know, there's, there's nothing really in the work to, to proselytize or preach or attempt to Convert anyone to a particular worldview, save for the one that you were just describing, Rudolph, which is the, the sort of hermetic view. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. of a, I'm of a great mind that that there is a tremendous imbalance in modern humans. I think essentially we've become so dependent on the rational, on the intellect, on what might be termed if we had to use a sort of dualistic model on a on a an Apollonian or a solar element, and of course that's a, that's a, a necessary component to to existence. You know, we all use logic. We all, you know, we all navigate the world through logical means in, their, in our day to day lives. However, there is still that Dionysian depth that I feel has become so distanced from so many people that we. There is a there is a, a need for it that I do believe it just it is demanding expression, um, and and that is one of the, the things that I believe attracts people to if they're not necessarily into esotericism or philosophy or mysticism, then perhaps they really enjoy supernatural horror fiction, for instance, ghost stories, things like that. Why, in my opinion, because these touch on the same current. They may not. You know, you can, you can basically dip your toe in. You don't have to swim in uh, to the depths, but you can at least get an experience of it. And as I said, at least it, it offers new ways of looking at the world, which I, you know, I think is a perfectly valid function for, for any work of, of art to do, is to offer that sort of vitalizing, enthused um, experience of, of viewing that fuller world, of viewing that world that is equal parts Dionysian and, and Apollonian that is equal mm. parts d- dark and light that is you know they're interpenetrating and they're weaving and there's all kinds of these um, paradoxes that we encounter in our in our life that to me are, are the just the fundament of, of existence that that sort of uh, numinous mystery that, that defies definition that can't be so cleanly uh, categorized or dismissed. Um, and I think that people do have a, a certain need for that, and and the the better forms of supernatural fiction, I believe, enable people to to sort of just as I said, dip their toe to at least have those kind of experiences, even if it, if they believe it's only at an an aesthetic level, or you know, if we want to reduce it even further, as the level of quote unquote entertainment. Um, I personally don't feel that that the best art functions as entertainment. I believe that it we have sort of bought into the idea that it is a commodity that art is just basically something that you you know you take in to while away a few minutes in between being a dutiful civilian at your at your your job and and you know paying your taxes and and being an upright citizen. Um, I think it runs much deeper than that. I think that the best art really does open up that kind of vista of. Of the
0: metaphysical absolutely um you just opened a few paths that we will go <laughs> along now uh maybe just well i have to say it even though i hate that subject on the on the show but uh, you just said that that we are uh, in imbalance towards the, the too rational almost we, we, we absolutely you know, one could say and the way we handle uh, this uh, common crisis at the moment shows a lot of that imbalance yes me. it does but if we want to stay in arts and literature, I just recently saw a little, a little making off of a of a Hollywood movie. Now it doesn't matter which one it was. It was one of the famous comic uh, um, uh, movies that had big success lately. And they said, "Well, it was such a good success because we had a whole team of the very best people who wrote the script and and fiddled around with the text." And so I said, "Well, that's nothing to do with art to me anymore. Is it's not a single." person a single or two maybe but
1: uh, sure it's art by committee basically yeah exactly yes and yes why (laughs) you know i i think that to me the best art whether or not it appeals to uh, me aesthetically or not i think the finest art has always been wrought by individuals who have a completely distinct vision Mm. uh that's that is to me that is the most successful and and fulfilling type of art is is where you can see the the artist be they a poet a writer a painter a musician playwright it doesn't matter the medium you can see that there is there is an obsession or set of obsessions of fascinations that they are really doing their utmost to convey there there's a there's a vision that they're they're attempting to to channel through that work right and i I would agree with you. I don't know when it starts getting into the the form of these, you know, massive entertainments where it is art by committee, that I think is what gets lost because that distinct or unique vision becomes more and more diluted so that in the hope, I I suppose, that it could reach the, the broadest possible audience. Um,
0: Abs- absolutely, definitely, and that brings us back to, to another of the paths that you opened, the one about the diamond, so not the demon, but the mm-hmm, diamond, mm-hmm. because uh, if I'm not wrong, the, the Latin equivalent, uh, the Roman equivalent, so to speak, of the diamond was the genius, the genius noci, yes. what creates the spirit of, of something,
1: yes, so 100%. the diamond
0: is exactly what you're mentioning in art, right?
1: Absolutely, and and the, the wonderful thing for for myself is I have always found that you know art is but one of the areas where I've been able to participate in this demonic reality. I've I've sensed it in places, you know, I've I, whether it's a, a particular grove of wood that's that's incredibly evocative, or you know the streets of the city in deep autumn when that atmosphere falls over them. There are just certain. Environments that just open up, and you, I can almost touch it. Um, this, I, I think, really goes back to early childhood for me, because I think that the the initiation, if you will, the beginnings of this for for myself were the fact that I have always been a, a very prodigious dreamer. Uh, that was really where all of this began, as best as I can recall. Was it was that for whatever reason, and it was certainly nothing that I consciously strove to do, it wasn't a, a skill that I pursued, I was just able to dream vividly, and there were often these these otherworldly, often eerie dreams that I, I would have on, with great frequency and, and incredible um, they were just all immersive and, and all encompassing for me, and I think that is what probably first led me to respond to things like ghost stories or you know, uh, that, that sort of darker imagery because I would, I would sense that same kind of state of being um, from these particular works when I was very young and just pursued more and more of it. Um, and as, as I got older, that became you know, ways that I wanted to participate with it much more directly So that's, that is ultimately where I suppose if it had just been at a superficial level, I would have been content to been a consumer of, of these kinds of fictional works and, and had left it at that. But even at a young age, I wanted to, to write them myself. I wanted to, you know, explore the principles that were perhaps being discussed in these stories of folklore of, of, uh, you know, dream work of and and so it, it was. It was really doing whatever I could to immerse myself fully in that in that demonic reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that has what has been informed all all of my um, really my my every aspect of my life to be to be truthful about it. Um, and sometimes it, it it finds context in a in a work of fiction. Other times it's it's part of you know, a spiritual practice. Other times it may be something that's in an essay or a work of nonfiction. Um, there's, a, there's an ongoing assimilation and an ongoing um, conversation, really, with this with this sort of spirit-led, spirit-enthused reality. And I believe many people do sense this. I, I truly do. I think that, that it's just that, again, going back to that disconnect, to that. To that over over reliance upon the the intellect or the rational principle, that right. the the irrational is is something that that becomes completely cast off in a lot of people's lives, and I think with the reintegration of that, the this demonic reality just blooms. And that that's my that's my belief on on the subject is that the the reintegration of these two polarities and the full acceptance of them as having you know, an equal importance in our lives is what really opens that, that gate to that to that demonic reality.
0: Mm-hmm. I would like to go a bit deeper into your personal story in a minute, but before that, one, one last other question. Sure. Um, there is an old hermetic saying uh, that says, uh, if you feel something is coincidence or fate, then it's just because you do not have yet the explanation for it right what? you don't have discovered the law that rules it yet um, would you say that the situations the that you describe in your stories in your in your fiction writing those horror situations mm-hmm. which are numinous on one side which are dark on the other side would you say they are also part of that of that um, that Maybe we, we as humans have not yet found our, the laws that, that rule uh, the situations in your stories? Or is that something else? Is fiction I, something completely different?
1: You know, I think in a way, I think we, we did have them. And I think we greatly gave them up, sold them mm-hmm. or lost them. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you, if you look at many of the, the ancient cultures and more primordial societies, there was a much more direct um, interaction with this fuller reality. Mm-hmm. um you know in but we we especially in the west have adopted a a very clean and and almost uh cut up version of of reality you know that the dead are dead they're you know they're gone mm-hmm. maybe we'll maybe we'll remember them with a photo on our mantle, but essentially you know there is no spirit, there is no spirit realm, there's nothing beyond beyond mm-hmm. death mm-hmm. um you know the, the we if we need to know something, we will look to the physical sciences, will look to, you know, Newtonian physics, which is really an ironic view because even, even just if you take a cursory glance at something like, let's say, you know, quantum physics of which I'm far from an expert, but you can already see the paradoxical, strange, yeah. uh, you know, portals opening under portals, opening under portals, this infinity that, that imbues that. So I think that's almost become like a strange, um, Sanctuary for people, but I think I think we can trace our way back to that that way of 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 that demonic reality. I do believe it was and I do believe it is right there. Um, the, the, the issue is, um, and in my own opinion, this is where this is really the crux of, of initiatory endeavor is that I think that there is a sense of battle within oneself. I believe that this this is really the obstacle that have, has to be overcome. You know, Nietzsche once said that humanity is something that needs to be surpassed. Mm-hmm. And I I agree with him on this. I think that the greatest um, conflict that we will endure is not against one's society. It's not being dark one society is light. It's not trying to be, you know, demonic if someone's angelic. It is about the fact that there is going to be this intellect, this uh, solar force, if you will, that is attempting to drive a wedge between oneself and this fuller demonic reality. And that is something that um, is really the crux. That's really the, the hurdle that you have to overcome is um, this reality, as I said, is, is right there. It is, it is at, at a sort of 90 degree angle. It's just it's just, just outside. It's in the periphery. Um, it's not something that is necessarily a, a grand transcendental you know, goal that you have to reach. It's, it's literally at your fingertips if you can open yourself up to it, if you can allow it to work on you. Um, and this, is, this ties in as well with things like the ego because I do believe that the ego is very much a construct of the intellect where it is, it is attempting to convince you that it is the arbiter of reality that it will be the one that is going to determine what experiences are authentic and which ones were just, you know, daydreams or uh, tricks of the light or, you know, fantasy or wishes. Yeah. And anyone that has had, has actually had hands-on experience, who has immersed themselves in, in whether it be ritual or, um, you know, whether they have wandered, let's say, a, 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 an ancient wood or, or a particular ruin or somewhere that's that's incredibly evocative to them, even if it's something as basic as you know a, a, an intense-looking sunset, for instance. Um, they will understand that there are those experiences where the intellect is eclipsed, and it is this more direct communication with this uh, with this demonic reality, with this fuller reality, where you understand, um, in a sense, how the ancients would have viewed the the, the, the world. Um, just because there was not the technology that we have today, say you know a few centuries ago, does not mean that the that these societies were filled with people who were completely ignorant of of you know the, the world and the way the world worked, and so they invented these ludicrous uh, fables about things. No, they they wrote of of spirits in folk tales and in, in folklore that was passed down because they were living in close proximity to this fuller more natural environment. We're very divorced, mm-hmm. you know, we're very divorced from that in modernity. We, we tend to live in, surrounded by artificial light, you know, artificial climates with heating and air conditioning. And, and so we've gotten very divorced from this direct source, uh, from this direct place. And that, I think, has been um, to our detriment. You know, it's, it's not something where I'm necessarily going to want to go and live in a shack for my, the rest of my life. But there are still inroads that can be can be built back to this, and they and they can be right. incredibly simple. I mean, one of my one of my favorite lines on these these kinds of subjects. I remember reading an interview with uh, the late Andrew Chumley, mm-hmm. and and you know he was asked how well how can one begin to let's say work with spirits? I believe was the original context. And Andrew Chumley's answer was, "Well, go out into the woods and invoke something." You right. know, it's it's it, it's quite a direct form of of. You know if you are open to that and receptive and you have that sincerity of intent and the willingness to to go and and you know greet this reality attempt to to you know work with this reality if that is what you wish to do um it is as i said right at one's fingertips
0: fingertip, yeah exactly um that you could also say that uh, the evolution that we should go away if we follow the saying by Nietzsche that you just cited, mm-hmm. could be something that, um, gets rid of the material aspect of the human being. If uh, I don't know what had Nietzsche had exactly on his mind in that sense, but it could also be an issue, right? It could also be a, a, a path to take. Um, and that, of course, brings us straight into the, into the discussion of, of transhumanism and those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think they are also a path that one should explore or is that something which is completely opposed to what you just
1: uh, what you just suggested. For me, I would I I, I don't consider myself a, a transhumanist necessarily in the sense mm. that I don't I don't have um, the goal of a, a a perfected self or a transcendental um, metaphysical aim where I you know shed the flesh. I believe that this right. this demonic reality is absolutely. Imbued in the flesh, the blood, mm-hmm. the soil, the, 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 the you know the natural elements. Um, I, I believe it is it is truly. I often say you know the, the world is a haunted house, and the doors mm-hmm. to that haunted house are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it it is again right there. So I think the the danger I, I suppose with all of the kind of uh, grander overreaching uh, philosophies, perhaps overreaching is a bit harsh. Um, if if someone is, is resonant, you know, with, with that kind of philosophy, that's great. Um, for myself, I'm, I'm much more interested in the fullness of the, this demonic reality here. Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe that the, I, I do believe that this is almost the axis of it, um, where I don't believe in a transcendental realm that is, um, pure of pure spirit. I, I absolutely, you know, um, work with spirits revere spirits understand their their uh their reality but i also believe that they are intimately linked to the living realm
0: right and that is maybe also one of the problems you may say that uh, this split into so-called high magic and low magic which i personally find completely wrong for the same reasons mm-hmm. why you didn't, shouldn't split into dark and bright and or numinous and, and daemon or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, uh, but that what creates sometimes the problems of understanding, to say the least, uh, um, between low and high magic, to use that term for a last time. <laughs>
1: indeed. Yeah, indeed. And I, I think that, you know, again, it's whatever one's path is, is you know, if, it, if they find it valid, I will say that for myself I don't I don't have, um, I don't engage with the the occult, to use the, again, I'll put it in air quotes here, that sort of broad term. Um, I don't engage with it as a means to accrue information or, uh, you know, do rituals to get money or mm. to, you know, mm. um, I, it has never been something for me that I have sought out of wanting a
0: utility so to
1: speak yes exactly it was never a utility to me it was never i never um i never had i was never lacking in in you know it was not it was not a void that needed to be to be filled Mm. to me it was much more of wanting to immerse myself and participate as as deeply as i could in this in this demonic reality um to work with with spirits to to essentially you know to to see this this realm as fully as I possibly can, um, so mm-hmm. it was it was much more rooted in, in in that. And if you know, if one may might class that as 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 low magic or as, as a form of let's say I don't know, sorcery or or you know just perhaps a a more mysticism as a, as opposed to a more practical mode of magic. That's completely fine, you know. But for me, it was really this. There was a living mystery. There was this sort of primordial mystery that I. I was really born into. I, I, I cannot say why I, I, you know, it was, as I said, it was not anything I cultivated. They were, these weren't necessarily things I pursued. It was just, this was the world that reached out and spoke to me. And, and that this was the world that was most profoundly resonant with me. And I wanted to just basically work, you know, with that as, as much as possible and as, um, honestly as possible and and frankly as reverentially as as possible i do you know I do regard it as something that that shouldn't be um, applied to things that that are practical or necessarily just kind of um, material goals and things like that you know there are other means to do that again we were you know we spoke earlier about that that balance between, the light in the dark. Well, you know, it's not necessary to call on you know spirits or gods to a- attain money. We, we all know that there are many other means out in the everyday world that one can pursue um, for for that sake. So, I believe that one's spiritual practice should be rooted fully in that that level of of the numinous, meeting it on its own terms as much as possible.
0: Also, because things need to balance and if you request something you will have to give something.
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Reciprocity. Right.
0: Well, normally those interviews often start with the personal background of the of the interviewee, oh, Richard. And um, but this time we did it the other way around. But now I think <laughs> it's it's a bit time, and I think it is very good. it was very good that we did it like that. You already touched uh, a few things about yourself, and maybe we can go a bit further and a bit deeper into that if if we may. Um, so. You you mentioned that already as a child, I believe, you had those dreams that were very intense, etc. But mm-hmm. um, where, where did it all start? And I mean, not only the, the fact of becoming a writer later on, also the fact of being aware of that other world. I'll call it like that now, sure. for the moment, what, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, how did it all start, and what was your background there? Did you, did you have uh, parents who 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 were also a bit like that? Or, well, up to you. What 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 was the
1: very beginning? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. It's it's a little difficult to, to trace simply because I, I, I think that these are the kinds of I think that the affinities that one has in life, that the knacks one has, the the um, the things that they resonate with is innate. I think very little is chosen consciously and pursued. Mm-hmm. Um, one can do that, and that's perfectly valid, but I think that what happens is when one Adheres to those that which is most innate to them, they get this wind at their back, so to speak. They, they really do, they get a they're, they're in a continuum. So, so I, sorry,
0: just just a little precision sure. there. Do you think that some, uh, that uh, well, every it's like musicians who often say every child is musical, but of course, if you don't look after its talent, then it will lose that and might feel even to be not musical a, at all. Do you think it's a bit the same with those? interest and capacities in the spiritual world that if you look after them you automatically will uh, will will feel them or is it something that not everyone at the beginning has it as an innate as an innate uh, capacity
1: i i think it is innate for some i don't mm-hmm. believe and this is this is an interesting you know point because it, it it i think touches on something else that i believe there's a common misconception i think where um Occultism, or the esoteric, or you know, the ability to to let's say work with spirits, as an as an example, is an elitist realm that mm. that that essentially you know it's oh you know these people are being elitist because they say this, um, and and let's let's be honest, there are a lot of people who are interested in the cult who do put on an air of elitism. Sure. Um, however, I do believe that that there, it, it is not an elite aspect but it is a rare aspect in other words this is you know esotericism is not for everyone you know the same way that i i cannot play a musical instrument to save my life Mm -hmm. um it's one has certain affinities and i believe that they they are born with them and not everyone is is born into uh with, with these particular affinities or or knacks or or um uh you know, resonances or these, these sort of, um, predilections and fascinations. Right. So, and again, that's just a, simply the way that it is. And my, my attitude is that if, if, if they are not one's nature, then it, it shouldn't really matter to them that they aren't able to, uh, work with, with spiritual or, or sense this, this demonic reality, if you will. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that they're failures or that they don't have this particular form of power it's just it's essentially if it's not for them why mm. would they worry i think yeah, the, sure. the issue is with with modernity there's very much this idea that anyone can be anything that they want yeah and you just basically can just make yourself up as you go. And if you, if you apply yourself and have that kind of will to power, that essentially you can just make yourself and do whatever idealized form you want to be. And I completely disagree with this. Yeah, I, yeah I, I'm with you. I'm yeah,
0: absolutely with you.
1: I think, it's, I think it's a fraudulent idea. And I think it basically, I think it also results in a lot of misery for a lot of people. Yeah. I think, you know, I think yeah. that they, they, they're attempting to be something that they simply are not. Um, so yeah, I think for myself, I was just born to it. Why it was, I don't know. My parents were both, you know, basically agnostic. We, I was not raised in any sort of, uh, religious household. It was quite a secular household. Um, they, you know, they didn't really talk much of, of dreams or anything like that or ghosts. Mm. Um, but for whatever reason, this was just what I was fascinated with. And, I found that really it started so early on, partly with dream and also I was also very much a daydreamer. You know, I was always in this kind of liminal state where I was just fascinated to, you know, sit and watch the clouds go by or to, you know, just sort of roam around and my imagination would be would be um, seeing and, and sensing all kinds of potential in this, you know, whatever environment I happen to be in. And that really became apparent to me when i started school which i was you know at best a, a mediocre student i dislike <laughs> i disliked school intensely um okay. because i was simply it was extraordinarily difficult for me to, to uh shoehorn myself into this very linear progressive, progressive view of you know of the world of sitting and learning and having everything in these digestible bits You know, for me, it was always this—this more of a of an amorphous, um, enigmatic um, type of thing, and that—that was where I spent, you know, most of my my time was this kind of interior life. And I think that where it led to writing and eventually to you know to other forms of of spiritual practice was, I firmly believe that things seek expression. I think that that is, that is the, the, one of the fundamental principles of the, of the world is that, you know, all things are seeking expression. And for me, it was uh, the, the aesthetic enjoyment or the, the, you know, whatever pleasure I happen to get from reading began to build to where I would build up in me and almost overflow. And I would just start. I would just start writing, you know, in little notebooks and things like that. I just started okay. making up my own what stories. What age are we talking about? Yeah. This I, I, I still, funnily enough, I still have some of my earliest uh, stories that um, I, I wrote in school, which were all to do with monsters and hauntings and things like that. So, and this is going back to when I was eight, nine. Okay. So you know, around there, uh, maybe even a little bit younger for some of them. And so that fascination was there. It, I didn't, you know, I didn't really understand it at the time i don't want to suggest that you know i thought oh look at this profound um expression i'm doing it was just simply it made sense it was just i i saw these stories in my head and was able to write them out and discovered that i had a you know a certain innate knack for language and it it evolved from there and i think where where it became was um was really a question of, of degree i think that this um this spirit enthuse or this kind of demonic reality um, was like, it was kind of like if you have a candle burning for a long time in a room and every so often the candle will flare up, you know, I'm not talking about anything supernatural, just essentially Mm -hmm. the way that the candle burns and suddenly the light gets much brighter and it goes from this more of a of of an ambient glow into something that's much fuller Right. That that was essentially how it began to build. So the, the candle glow was always there, that that sort of ambient light of this other place or this deeper place was always there. But as I began to write and to, you know, in childhood try out Ouija boards and things like this to, you know, attempt to contact spirits and, the, you know, basically things that a lot of children do, I'm sure, that have interests in this field. Mm-hmm. Um, that was how it began to really flare up and I would sense it, brighter and more tangible and it would it would illuminate more um so as as time went on I just you know I I progressed further and further and you know read as much as I could on on various mystical traditions and philosophy and I was very much an auto actually I was very much an autodidact and in that all of the the learning that I had from philosophy mysticism and the craft of writing definitely came from uh, my own studies rather than formal schooling Mm -hmm. um and it, you know, it evolved from there. And I was always interested in um, not only not only the, the, the supernatural and and the you know the the, the gothic and so forth, but also um, in in primordial societies and, and and tribal societies. All of these things were just so fascinating to me because they they were offering um, other ways of interacting with the world that I found incredibly resonant. Just knowing that there were things like. Um, you know, tribes that had ancestral worship, tribes that worked with, you know, that appeased the natural elements and things like that. These were the kinds of things that were that were profoundly uh, of interest to me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as it evolved, as I mentioned, it was less about attempting to. I don't think I ever really had a moment where I thought, oh, well, this is you know, witchcraft is what I will practice, or mm-hmm. you know, I'll become a Thelamite, or I will become this or that. It was yeah. really more to do with what techniques are most useful to myself to enable me to participate and, and, and be enveloped and, and engrossed in, in this, this spirit realm, this, this almost like this underworld, I suppose, that, that, that would bloom under certain particular conditions. And so that, that was really where it evolved a lot of experimentation and, and things right. of that nature.
0: Now, if this question is too personal, just just let me know. But have you then later on ever become part of groups, so to speak, like the ones you just mentioned, or whatever, uh, uh, a coven or or an order, like the Golden Dawn or the Order or whatever? Have you have you actually practiced that?
1: Yes, when I was in my twenties, I was again avidly trying to pursue. I, I knew that it had that, that there was something um, about me that resonated with. Um, this darker element, and so a lot of a lot of sort of, I guess, you know, Western diabolist groups uh, were were of importance to me, and mm-hmm. uh, eventually, and then for a time, I was also uh, involved with Kenneth Grant's Typhonian Order. Um, right. I think
0: you once said in an interview that I wrote that one of your biggest influences, also for your writing, actually, was Kenneth Grant. Indeed,
1: right? absolutely. Grant was mm-hmm. Grant was definitely a, a major revelation to me when I discovered him in my early twenties, late teens. Mm -hmm. Um, and eventually, you know, I, I, you know, sort of evolved, uh, um, onto other avenues. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, things like that were very important to me. Grant remains, uh, you know, a very important writer to me. I think he was, you know, a a crucially, um, he was just a crucial element to, to really conveying, uh, a, a unique and potent, uh, cosmology and worldview. Even if you don't have to take it all wholesale, because he wrote about so many different um, aspects—from Kabbalah to to Crowley to Hinduism—but it was always, again, going back to that idea of the original voice that we were talking about earlier. You can detect Kenneth Grant in in a, in a, a mere sentence. You mm-hmm. know, he he always had that particular lens, and I don't believe he was trying to distort traditions or to to try and make them be, you know, darker or more Lovecraftian or what have you, I do believe that he was sensing these um, these aspects of them. Um, so he was important, but again, there were all other figures as well. Austin Spare, Rosaline Norton, to whom the new book is actually dedicated.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, exactly.
1: um, You know, th- these were all very important figures. And a lot, and then again, also too, just a lot of scholarly books about, you know, various uh phonic gods and, and, and darker gods. And, and, um, you know, voodoo is very important. David Beth is a, is a good friend yeah. and, and uh, a very, you know, powerful influence on me. And, you know, I tremendously value the, uh, the input that he's, he's had in, in my life mm-hmm. and work over the years. So yes, yeah, many different things, but again, all of them in the sense singular, I don't believe that I'm one of the, the people that's just essentially, you know, cherry picking this and that from other traditions um, everything is an outgrowth of, you know, my own kind of direct experience with with these kinds of things, uh, rather than trying to mold together a a thing that's you know a little bit Celtic and a little bit uh, Kabbalah and a bit of you know witchcraft all sort of mashed together. That's never really been of interest to me. But um, I, I will I will be a maverick in the sense that I will use those those techniques or those uh, principles or those you know um aspects that are the most effective for me
0: so could one say that well i take that celtic term now just because it's a generic term like that this other world right mm-hmm. um is necessary for your writing for your art is that is that could that be a statement that you would agree with
1: absolutely i would yes it's 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 completely integral um it mm-hmm. informs um, because the interesting thing is that I, I I don't really um when I write, it's not really a, a again a clean-cut process. It's not a very linear process. It's very much a an assimilation. Mm-hmm. So um I, it could involve a bit of a conversation I had at one point in my life, combined with a fragment of a dream, combined with a vision from you know uh, a, a trance session that I had gone under. Um mm-hmm. And all of these things are kind of patchworked together and they become this eventually a narrative. Sometimes it's immediate, sometimes it takes years. Um, but all of them, I think, are informed by this participation. Because again, they, to me, initiation or spiritual practice is a mystery that is that should never be solved, that can never be solved. It's, it's not about you know learning the one name and then you're able to you know, have all the powers that you wish to have. It's right. really about you know, if if you lift the veil, another veil will appear. If you you know, if you take a step, it's it's going to step further back. You know, it's very much, mm-hmm. um, again, going back to this kind of uh, grotesque aspect from the beginning. I, I'm I'm very influenced by George Bataille, the French uh, philosopher theorist. And one of Bata's, uh concepts was the, the limit experience, where he essentially believed that it was really trying to push yourself up to and even past the perimeters of your own being. And I believe this is absolutely crucial. This is, this is how one um, surpasses the human, if you will. Um, because... A lot of horror fiction, interestingly enough, is extraordinarily conservative in its, in its view. Essentially, yeah. it, ha- it, has, it has a great deal to do with, here's the picture-perfect family or the picture-perfect culture, and in comes the evil supernatural force, and that is going to disrupt everything, and we have to you know, utilize whatever forces we have at our, at, the, at our fingertips so that we can banish this and go back to the status quo. That, yeah. is, a, that is a complete anathema to to my own ethos with my work my work is is very much about revelation about allowing that otherness to completely shatter the vessel because the vessel is going to lead to stasis the vessel is what is going to lead to the inflation of the ego with the 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 distancing of oneself from from the fullness of their own existence so the monster, the spirit, the, the, you know, the evil force, whatever, whatever mask it happens to wear, is always about that kind of dark liberation. And that, that is, I think, one of the fundamental differences. Um, I don't have any interest in trying to restore a kind of neat status quo. I don't believe that there you know, these threats, most of the time they are essentially, everything carries a trace of its own opposite. So that is that which is the most other to oneself is at one's core so it really is about taking that that deep latency and just allowing it to to shriek to shadow that vessel you know that's that's i believe the one of the great um i guess drives really of of my of my fiction Mm
0: -hmm. you just defined uh, initiation in a very in a very interesting way i believe and in that sense would you see yourself as being initiated
1: um i do in the but in the sense that i believe most of my initiators are non-living <laughs> uh okay. you know it's it's essentially been I, I do very much feel that i've had for whatever form for whatever sort of um uh, abilities or or whatever sort of you know wisdom or insight or experience because it's very much about a vitalizing experience yeah. i've had in no way am i do i want to come you know convey that i'm a, a teacher or a guru or someone that, that has a, a, a lesson to to pass on save for the fact that you know if if these are if these are things that resonate with you that i again going back to that ethos of you know, make, make those efforts of, of the, of the sincere invocation of the, the willingness to, to let go, to, to, uh, press against that, that force of the intellect. That's really about it. I, I do feel that, you know, all of, all of my experiences, whether it's with when, you know, involved with the Typhonian order or, um, you know, the the experiences from childhood, they've all been an ongoing, um, initiation into, into a, a fuller reality. And if, if any of my books are inspiration for others to, to seek more of the same, that's, that is wonderful. That's, that's an incredible uh, vindication for me.
0: Which closes the circle again to the diamond to the genius Loki. That's exactly what what it means. Absolutely. Right? Right. Uh, Well, the question I have now for you was initially thought to be the final question of the interview, but it is not. I repeat, it is not the final question. (laughs) But I have to ask you now because it perfectly fits in what you just said. Um, Somebody, I don't know who it was, wrote as a... As a re, in a review of one of your I think even earlier books mm-hmm. uh, he says that um, Gavin has the narrative strength and the innovative power of a veteran so do you believe uh, that you are an old soul does that mean that <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: it's an interesting thought I, I I don't think I don't think it is however I I think that whatever merit my my, my prose has um, comes from An unwavering conviction that I had very early on when I first set out to try and become a published writer, which was many years ago. And that was I was going to try and convey my own vision and 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 really work to select words that conveyed a poetic sense that really that were evocative of these these environments, these places, these impressions you know, uh, and, and convey them as concretely and, and as, I suppose, it, you know, in a way it's, it's sort of like the way, um, many of the surrealists attempted to, uh, I believe the term was, they tried to convey the dream with architectural clarity. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 think that that was a, you know, a, a nice summation, um, I suppose I, I don't know about the you know the idea of being an old soul, but I will say that well, that was, the old soul thing was
0: from me. The sure, the, yeah. the, the veteran thing was from Deriva. Um, yeah, so but I think for you know for,
1: for myself, I think it really comes down more to the fact that many of those nineteenth-century ghost story writers and supernatural writers, for instance, and in early twentieth century, were immensely important to me because again, they weren't trying to. Create or, or fit in a genre. I think that they were really trying to to write sincere literature. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it was Algernon Blackwood, who is, a, is an immense impact, or Arthur Mackin, you know the, these were these were individuals who were definitely conveying a worldview, a, a, their experience of the world, which often included ghosts, gods, spirits. Mm-hmm. The, you know the the eternal mystery. Um, and, and that has, has definitely been, that is certainly a lineage that I, I, I fancied myself in my early days to, to want to be a part of. And I'm very gratified that as the years have gone on and the more work I've produced, there are many, you know, critics and and readers who, who see my work as a sort of contemporary extension of, of that lineage, which, which again is extremely humbling and rewarding.
0: Has the classical German Romanticism, Romantic literature, Romantic movement been an influence?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Hugely, hugely important to me. Many, and, and, you know, as well, the, the, from from Goethe, as well as a lot of the the writers and philosophers that came later. uh, Ludwig Klages is of immense importance to me. E.T.A. Hoffman, maybe. Hoffman, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's, that was definitely, yeah, the, the, a lot of the um, Germanic. Folk tales and storytelling story and the romanticism definitely uh, was, was of uh, huge impact on me and, and I think continues to this day. I mean, many of those touchstones I can go back to even if I've read them several times and over many years and still see, you know, new and powerful aspects to their work and I think that's the sign of, of masterpieces is when you can go back and revisit no, them and, and regardless of when they were written or what culture they, they emanated from, they have that intensity to where it's taking place in the now. You know, you are, you are experiencing yeah. them in the moment. That's, that is probably the, the, the greatest um, pinnacle that, that, that yeah. art can reach.
0: Yeah, And also, uh, I don't know about you, but maybe you're still too young for that. But uh, it often happens to me that when I reread those works 20 years later, they have a complete different, not a different sense that would be wrong, but they, they, they mean something else to me and yes. still they are another facet, which is just as strong as it was before, but in another level. Yes, uh, absolutely. That, that makes a real masterpiece. Right? Oh, uh,
1: indeed, indeed. And, and I know for myself, um, as when I was younger, and was reading, you know, whether it was Blackwood or M.R. James or, or mm. whomever, um, to me, was it was the effect and the, the image was so central that when I go back and revisit them, I actually see how also they, they touch on all of these other themes that I didn't get as a youth. But as an adult, I can appreciate, you know, the the a lot of the, uh, whether it's character development or the way that they're describing nature is another, you know, massively important aspect. Um, You know, and you can tell, the the other thing that I love about this, uh, many of the the better writers in this field is you can also tell, I believe, when these works are written out of direct experience and when they were written out of just imaginative fancy. I'm not suggesting that they're true. I'm not trying to say that. But what I am saying is that, you can tell when you read Blackwood that he was a, a man who, who, who hiked, who traveled, who canoed, who knew poverty as well as, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, the posture lifestyles. You knew that he was a man who had, um, if not a belief, because I don't, you know, that, that's, uh, again, one of those terms that's very loaded, but I think he definitely had a, a, a sensitivity or a respect for the notion of spirits beyond just a literary device you can tell that this was a man who essentially conveyed mm-hmm. that you know these were aspects of the world in which we live and that Definitely. that's i think that has been so tragically lost uh, <laughs> again going back to what we discussed earlier that i believe that you know these are things that we're not necessarily working towards they're things that we had and sort of sold or gave up and i think that that, that aspect of of supernatural literature is is tragically rare. I don't think it's lost altogether. You know, there, I think there are still authors in the field who, who um, explore, you know, and writing philosophical work and exploring the, the, these kinds of aspects as more than just tropes or literary devices. But I don't believe that it is um, as common or as as um, accepted, perhaps, as it, as it was in the past.
0: So, guys, if you will read Richard Gavin next week. Keep your book and reread it 20 years later, <laughs> and you will have a complete different experience once again. I love it. <laughs> you mentioned David Bess a bit earlier, mm-hmm. who, of course, is well known to our listeners here because he was a uh, guest on the show, and we had a QA even with him later on. And uh, I don't know if everyone knows here that you have done not only fiction writing, but there is, at le- that I think that's the only nonfiction book, at least the only nonfiction books that i know of but you correct me if i'm wrong but you published with theon publishings uh, um, the benighted path about three years ago i believe
1: uh yeah well actually i've written a, a few a couple of book length works of esotericism there was another work that i did there was actually a shorter work but called the moribund portal mm-hmm. um and but the the benighted path yeah that was that was a a, a wonderful project that came about through um, my affiliation with with, with David Beth, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, that was really he, he was wonderfully supportive. Both he and Jessica, both at Theon, mm-hmm, were incredibly yeah. incredibly supportive, and um, in really giving me this this forum to explore a lot of the themes that that were of of uh, great import to me, and that I hadn't really seen conveyed or given the context uh, that I tried to give them in the benighted path. In other esoteric works, um, and I can say that the project I'm currently working on is the, is a new book that will be coming out through through Theon. Um, oh, great! Yes, yeah, so there's another full length work of esotericism. Um, I'm I'm in the midst of doing some revisions on it now. I'm hoping to turn it into David for review before the end of this year, and you know, if all goes well, it may even be published next year.
0: Great. So we will keep an eye on that. that. That's great news. Wonderful. So that's already, well, you're always anticipating me. That seems to be the <laughs> link there because I was going to ask you about your future projects now. Um, any any other projects that you would like to talk about uh, apart from from that nonfiction book you just mentioned?
1: That's really been the, the major one. That's been my major mm-hmm. focus since uh, Grotesquery was completed okay. and, and, and now published. Um, so after that, you know, I, I, have various other works. I always have myriad projects in various stages of completion. So, yeah. um, who knows what you know? How the muse will strike me, and what inspiration will I'll find to, sure. to complete the next one. But I, the the next uh, the next project will will definitely be the, the forthcoming right. uh, nonfiction work from Theon.
0: Let the moose kiss you often. Um, when we talk about the benighted path and that new work, nonfiction work that's coming out, um, would you say that this is, for the interested listener, something that defines Richard Gavin as an occultist, or is it something else?
1: I think it goes. A, I think it goes a long way to definitely offer my own take on on all of these sort of metaphysics, if you will, on on mm. these aspects of of. Um, what what the theologian Rudolf Otto called the mysterium tremendum—that that sort of mystery and terror and and the use of of fear and, and in in an initiatory context, which I believe is immensely important, um, because it is such a sensitizing force and a, and a call to consciousness of a deeper, more more primordial form. So I think it is fair to say, and I'm I'm quite happy because the the, the current work that's uh, the that is coming out next with Theon is, is draws on some of the aspects of the benighted path, but it's a much more focused work that explores elements um, much more in depth because it's, it's less of a, of a broad overview and more of a focused um, exploration.
0: Mm-hmm. We've started this interview with the definition of the word grotesque. And now we are coming to its end, unfortunately, already. Time's flying, but that's a good (laughs) sign, I would believe. Um, But maybe maybe we could try to finish with another of those definitions of yourself. Or uh, maybe let's not define the word because that will take at least two other interviews. But I ask it differently. How do you use the term occult?
1: Ah, excellent. Okay. <laughs> Personally, what, what I always tend to do in this, in this instance is I, I much prefer es, the esoterica, esotericism, mm-hmm. or the esoteric. And I'll explain why. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not just a semantic issue. Is again, with this term being so saddled and, and with, with various misinterpretations and interpretations, and um, because it means such a broad concept. The esoteric or esotericism is the latent or the the hidden or the obscured aspect of all things, mm-hmm. and I suppose you know in a sense a cult could do that. But it is I'm, I, I distinguish it because I think it's removed from any particular set of te- techniques or technologies. It can be accessed through a myriad form of 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 aspects, whether it's art, whether it's it's it's. Uh, You know, ritual or or meditation or philosophical musing or daydream. There is a plethora of ways to evoke this kind of poetic, irrational latency that 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 is seething all around us and that that is very content and eager, in fact, to participate with us to communicate. Um, And so, for me, that was how that would be how I would define it is the the unseen or the latent or the dark, if you will, the obscured aspect of, of this larger world that, that can be accessed, provided one is willing to align themselves or orient themselves to this sort of irrational uh, Dionysian uh, engagement with the world.
0: Well, that sounded like a great final word, didn't it? (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, thank you, Richard. It was great to have you on this show today. Um, uh, Lovely to speak to you, and I hope we can repeat that one day. Maybe next year when the new book uh, with Theon will be out, maybe we should try to repeat that and talk about those nonfiction books also a bit. That sounds Um,
1: fantastic.
0: Thank you for today, and uh, well, have a good time, and... uh, have a good time over there in Canada and uh, thank you for your time.
1: And thank you very much for having me. It was an excellent conversation. Take care. Thank you. Bye, bye now. Bye.